you've all heard, and I, I would say everyone in the world has heard of David and Goliath. Because every single person, let's say every single person in America knows exactly what someone means when they say it's a David versus Goliath matchup. Everybody knows what that is. The underdog versus the favorite. Now what you may be a little less familiar with is what happened after David versus Goliath. We're going to read in a minute from seven chapters after David and Goliath in 1 Samuel. In between there, it's just one long story, and here's how it started. After David beat Goliath, he kept on having success in everything that he did, and the people of Israel, they thought he was the best. And the king at the time, his name was Saul, and he didn't like this so much. In fact, he said one chapter after David versus Goliath, he said, they have credited David with tens of thousands, but me with only thousands. What more can he get but the kingdom? And from that time on, Saul kept a close eye on David. He was worried that David was going to get more honor than he was. And he didn't just keep a close eye on David. Over the course of the next four or five chapters, Saul, the king, he tried to pin David to the wall with a spear. He tried to have his son Jonathan kill David, and Jonathan was David's best friend. He sent a group of men to David's house to kill David when he came out of the house in the morning. And Saul tried to kill his own son Jonathan because Jonathan refused to kill David. That was in the span of two chapters. And then over the course of the next three, Saul is pursuing David, who is hiding out in all the different areas of Israel. He's pursuing David with an army to try and kill David, all over honor. For three chapters, David is hiding out. And then this happens. It's our text for today, 1 Samuel 24. Listen to this. After Saul returned from pursuing the Philistines, he was told, David is in the desert of En Gedi, a certain area of, of Israel. So Saul took 3,000 able young men from all Israel and set out to look for David and his men near the crags of the wild goats. He came to the sheep pens along the way. A cave was there, and Saul went in to relieve himself. David and his men were far back in the cave. The men said, this is the day the Lord spoke of when he said to you, I will give your enemy into your hands for you to deal with as you wish. Then David crept up unnoticed and cut off a corner of Saul's robe. Afterward, David was conscience stricken for having cut off a corner of his robe. He said to his men, the Lord forbid that I should do such a thing to my master, the Lord's anointed, or lay my hand on him, for he is the anointed of the Lord. With these words, David sharply rebuked his men and did not allow them to attack Saul. And Saul left the cave and went his way. Then David went out of the cave and called out to Saul, My lord, the king. When Saul looked behind him, David bowed down and prostrated himself with his face to the ground. He said to Saul, Why do you listen when men say, David is bent on harming you? This day you have seen with your own eyes how the Lord delivered you into my hands in the cave. Some urged me to kill you, but I spared you. I said, I will not lay my hand on my Lord, because he is the Lord's anointed. 
See, my father, look at this piece of your robe in my hand. I cut off the corner of your robe, but did not kill you. See that there is nothing in my hand to indicate that I am guilty of wrongdoing or rebellion. I have not wronged you, but you are hunting me down to take my life. May the Lord judge between you and me, and may the Lord avenge the wrongs you have done to me. But my hand will not touch you. As the old saying goes, from evildoers come evil deeds. So my hand will not touch you. This is God's word. Now I gave you the backstory. Now you've got the story. But the bottom line in all of this is David, he could have killed the king of Israel. The king of Israel who was illegitimately pursuing him and trying to kill him and who came after him, get this, with 3,000 soldiers. 3,000 soldiers. He could have killed the man who was trying to kill him. But he didn't. He didn't. He, he even had good friends who pointed him, who pointed him to a promise from God and said, hey, this is what God meant. This has to be what God meant when he said, I'm going to deliver you. Like, there's the guy who's trying to kill you. You could just end all this now and then you could take over because you're the Lord's anointed. You know what happened when Samuel came and said, you're going to be the next king. You could do this. And maybe in the moment, David thought, yeah, good idea. But then maybe, and this is conjecture, but maybe as, as he made his way towards Saul, he said, I can't do it. But I'll, but I'll do this, maybe just to show Saul. I'll, I'll cut off a corner of his robe. But then later, you heard. His conscience couldn't even handle that. Couldn't even handle sneaking up and cutting off a corner of Saul's robe. And how, how did he do that? Without Saul noticing, I have no idea. But I think it would make a great, a great movie scene. And also, what were the 3,000 guys doing? Why weren't at least five of them with Saul in the cave? I, I have no idea. But obviously, it was part of God's plan because it happened. He could have killed Saul, but he didn't. The story is simple. But in those last couple verses, David shows us some great principles for what the fourth commandment looks like in daily life. First of all, we're going to look at verse 12 and then verse 11. In verse 12, David prayed, May the Lord judge between you and me, and may the Lord avenge the wrongs you have done to me, but my hand will not touch you. David here, he leaves it to the Lord. He knows it's not all up to him. God's got it. And it is the same way with us. It is not your and my calling to go and right every single wrong in the world or every single wrong that is done to us. And I'm so thankful that it does not fall on us to right every wrong. Think of the pressure if it were all up to you. Not just to take care of everything in your own life, but to take care of everything in the world. It's not up to you. It's up to God. And David left it to the Lord. God's got it, so you don't have to. You can just live as a citizen of the country and vote and exercise your other citizen rights. You don't have to get hung up on if everything is exactly the way you think it should be. You can simply live as someone in your house or in your neighborhood or in your job without getting hung up on if it's all exactly as you think it should be. Leave it to God. You can just live as a part of a church and do ministry. And sure, maybe not everything is going to be exactly how you want it to be, 
but that's okay. Because you don't need it to be exactly how you want it. Even if you think you know the best way, God's got it in every single area of life. And David illustrates this extremely well. He said, I'll leave it to the Lord. He is perfectly just. He will avenge whatever wrongs happen in exactly the right way. And it's the same way for us today. Now, secondly, in verse 11, David says this. He says, I cut off the corner of your robe, but did not kill you. See that there is nothing in my hand to indicate that I am guilty of wrongdoing or rebellion. I have not wronged you, but you are hunting me down to take my life. When it comes to honoring people, leaders in all areas of your life, and everyone, it comes down to this. It's not about what they do. It's not about what they do to you. It's simply about you honoring them. And more importantly than that, it's about doing simply what God says. You can disagree with people in your home or in your church or in your government. You can disagree and advocate even strongly for what you believe are the right ways, but never dishonor because that's simply what God says. Now, there's one commentator who, he goes a little deeper. He goes a lot deeper into the why. Why is it hard to honor people? Here's what he says. This command, this commandment, is intended to expose our propensity to honor ourselves. We think the real reason we struggle with honoring others is this. We think, well, they're just not honorable. They're not respectable. But he said, the real reason is this. To honor someone is to put them ahead of yourself, to consider them before you consider yourself. What he's saying is, we fail at the fourth commandment and honoring all the different leaders God puts in our lives because we're too busy trying to get honor for ourselves. Because I don't want to put other people above me I want to be above them. And this shows itself in so many areas of your life, maybe even every single way of your life. Like the things you do around your house. Sure, you do them for whoever else is living there or you do them for your neighbors, but there's a part of you that is doing it for yourself. Or you show honor and respect to your boss at work and that's good and that's wonderful, but you're also, a little part of you sometimes is doing it for yourself. You post a good saying or a picture on social media because you know it'll be helpful to other people or you know your relatives love seeing photos of you or your family or whatever you're doing. And so you're doing it for them, but also, in a way, you're doing it for you. Because you're thinking, at least sometimes, that by, by putting this up there, it's not just for them, but, but people are going to think a certain way of me. I would say that almost, I, I want to say 100%, but I'm sure there's a, a situation out there where it's not true. So I'll say almost every single time you think about how others are thinking about you, you break the fourth commandment. Because we are addicted to getting honor. That's what drove Saul to try and kill David over and over and over again. It wasn't that he just hated David as a person. It was because he hated what David was threatening to take away, and David wasn't even trying to do it. 
He hated that the honor of the people was shifting more to David than to him. And so he thought, I need that honor. The only way to do it is to get rid of David. We are addicted to getting honor. And this is bad, first of all, because God says it's wrong. Second of all, though, of second importance, this is bad for us when we do this. Thirsting for honor, hungering after affirmation and clamoring for credit, it's exhausting. It's tiring. Trying to to think that my opinion has to win the day, I have to be right, people have to honor me, that is exhausting and you will never be fulfilled. Because even if you get the honor that you're seeking, then you have to keep it. It will never, ever be enough. Not only is it wrong, it's bad for you. And thirdly, it's also bad for everyone else. Because if you and I are stuck on trying to get honor for ourselves, you have no time or energy left for honoring others. You're blinded to those around you because you're too consumed with thinking about yourself and how other people are thinking and honoring you. I can't serve others if I'm, if I'm hung up on being served and getting honor for myself. And that's a lot of bad news. But it's not the only news. It's not the only news. Here's the truth. I'm going to tell you the truth and then tell you why it's the truth. The truth is this. You don't need honor. You don't need people to think that you're a good person or your opinions are very valuable. You might think that you need it, but the truth is you do not need it. You don't need affirmation from other people. You don't need them to honor you and respect you. In your whole life, whether it's in your home or in your neighborhood or in your church or in your work or in the government or anywhere in your life, you can say, I don't need honor. I don't need my opinion to win the day. I want to lend my voice. I want to be heard. I want to go out and do great things, but I don't need, I don't need the affirmation. I don't need the credit. That's not what I need. I, I want to go out and do good things. I want to be respected, and it'll be, it would be good if I were honored, but I don't need it. And why? Because you already hold the highest honor there is to hold. You have the honor of being God's child. And there is nothing better than being honored by God. Nothing at all. And you are. God honors you. Uh, when, When Jesus was baptized, God the Father boomed down from heaven and he said, you are my son whom I love. With you I am well pleased. And one of the countless benefits of your baptism is that in baptism, God says to you, you are my child. He says, I know, I know in your past life and in your future life, I know how how you dishonor leaders. You don't just disagree, but you dishonor and you disrespect them. I know how you clamor for credit, how you're thirsting after affirmation of the other people around you, how even in in the little words that you say day in and day out, you're trying to draw some attention to yourself. He says, I know how you do all that. But in baptism, God says, through this water and this promise and Jesus' death and resurrection, I have washed away all 
of your sin. And I honor you because I chose you to be my child. You hold the highest honor there is to hold. You are God's child. God says to you in your baptism, just like he said to Jesus, you are my child whom I love. With you, I am completely pleased. There's no higher honor. But there's even more good news. Author David Zoll, he said, Our hope is not found in the passing of tests, but in the forgiveness of failure. I'll say it once more. Our hope is not found in the passing of tests, but in the forgiveness of failure. The truth is, the test to end all tests, it's already been passed. It's been passed 100% by Jesus. And his achievement He's given it to you. Jesus perfectly honored every single authority in his earthly life. He has always and will always perfectly honor his Father. He respected even people who were disrespectful to him. He honored people who were completely dishonorable. He did it perfectly. And he took his achievement and he gave it to you because when he died, he took his perfection and left it to you as your inheritance. And so now, you're free. You have all the value that you'll ever need. You have it in Jesus. Everything you will ever need, you have it in Christ. And so you don't need honor. Even if you're owed it, no matter how important you are or unimportant, you don't need honor. You are free to be unimportant. You're free to not have your opinion taken in the way you want, to, you want it to be taken. Because your value and identity, it, it doesn't hinge on what other people think of you. You're free to be forgotten. You're free, you're free to not need honor and respect from anyone else, which in a way makes you invincible. You're free to have things not go your way. You're free to have the person you didn't vote for win the election. You're free to have your boss not like you, even though you're a great worker. You're free, you're completely free because you have everything you really need. You are free to be overlooked because God will never overlook you. And because That's because God honored you and me by adopting us into his family. He didn't have to, but he chose you. And there's no greater honor, no greater way to be shown you're important than for someone to choose you. And God chose you. And the cost wasn't just tens of thousands of dollars and a lot of legal fees. The cost was the life of his own son. And I promise I'm not exaggerating when I say that is 100% of the honor. I'm actually underselling it when I say that is 100% of the honor, 100% of the esteem that you will ever truly need. You're free to say, I don't need to be honored. I can simply honor everyone else that God puts in my life.
Amen.